And now, if you will, turn with me in a Bible to Romans chapter 11. Romans chapter 11. Now, more years ago than I would like to admit, I had the privilege of being an undergraduate student majoring in pastoral studies. Arizona Bible College in Phoenix, Arizona, and then later what is now known as Philadelphia Biblical University. It would be some years after that when I pursued some graduate work, Biblical Theological Seminary in Pennsylvania. When I went off to seminary, I was under the impression that seminary would take me way beyond my Bible college studies and hopefully make something of a theologian out of me. But in one of my first classes, the rather esteemed professor of New Testament theology gave us our first assignment. We were to memorize a number of select portions of Scripture. And at that point, I have to tell you, at first I felt as though I was back in my junior high Sunday school class. Memory verses. (laughs) Not my strong suit, by the way. Since those days, however, of having learned uh, some Hebrew, some Greek, and many other wonderful subjects, I want to confess that so much of what I learned in those days in order to pass the exam that I fear that if I were asked many of those questions today it would become very obvious that I've forgotten much of the curriculum. But that professor, among other key portions of Scripture, required the memorization of the words of Scripture in particular, the words of Jesus. And after all these years, certain of those memorized words stay with me. The words of Jesus in Luke's gospel. You need not turn there. But at that time when I memorized that portion of Scripture, it brought deep conviction to my heart and to my mind, which frankly remains to this very day. Here it is, and as I said, since memorization is no longer uh, my strength, I'm going to read the words so that I get every one of them right. Imagine, if you will, the Lord Jesus speaking directly to you. If you want, close your eyes and ask him to help you to hear these words of Jesus as though you were hearing them for the first time. Today, Jesus said, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words, of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in his glory 
and the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. That's Luke chapter 9, verses 23 through 26. Let him deny himself. Self-denial, Jesus says, will be the distinguishing mark of a true follower of Christ. The denial of self, selfishness, self-absorption, the me, myself, and I epidemic. There must be, Jesus says, the laying aside, the nailing to the cross. And it must be how often? Daily. The laying aside, the crucifying of the inherent sinful self-interest of our fallen natures. And in a culture, beloved, dominated by selfism, you would think that Christians would be very easy to spot, wouldn't you think? What a contrast between light and darkness. To know that Christ followers are the very salt and light who demonstrate self-denial. What would they look like? Well, there would be, of all things, humility in an age of self-promotion. There would be forgiveness in an age of retaliation, getting even. There would be patience in an age of instant gratification. Got to have it now. There would be generosity in an age of greed and tight selfishness with one's resources. There would be compassion in an age of self-absorption. There would be love in an age of lust. There would be truthfulness in an age of deceit. There would be gentleness in an age of harshness. And as we have witnessed in our very nation this last week and a half or so, there would be gentleness in an age of increasing incivility. There would be kindness in an age of people pursuing their rights. There would be self-control in an age of indulgence and addiction. Self-denial in that call to discipleship, take up your cross, deny your self. Jesus is quite literally asking, what am I worth to you? Does your love for me, 
your claim to believe and trust in me? I think he would say, does it cost you anything? So when was the last time you said no to yourself? When was the last time you were even inconvenienced a bit in order to serve the Lord? Christian writer and a discipler of women, Beth Moore, shares her own struggle against this spirit of self-absorption in our day. Here's what she wrote. She said, without a doubt, one of the primary works God has sought to accomplish in me is to help me get over myself. The process has been excruciating and will no doubt be lifelong. But I have never been more thankful, she says, for any work in my life. I know no other way to say it. God finally got me to a place where I made myself sick. Oh, I still get plenty of glances at my self-centeredness, but never without now a good wave of nausea. God and I now have a term for it in our prayer time. Don't expect something deeply intellectual or theological, Beth Moore says. Between God and I, we just call it my self-stuff. Almost every day, I ask God to help me address any active self-stuff and to nail it to the cross. I literally name everything he brings to mind and look it straight in the face even if it makes me cry. And then most perceptively, she goes on to say this. The following terms fall under the category of self-stuff. Let's give them a good look, she says. There is self-exaltation. There is self-protection. There is self-righteousness. There is self-indulgence. There is self-worship. There is self-serving. There is self-absorption. There is self-delusion. There is self-pity. There is self-sufficiency. And then she said, did I leave anything out? Well, I could think a few of my own that she hadn't named. Is that some stuff or what, she says. If you think of any others, add them to my list. Self, self, self. May it be enough to make a self sick. Here's the big lie. She writes, Satan has convinced us that laying down our self stuff is going to be some huge sacrifice. Oh, beloved, what deception. Our self stuff is what makes us most miserable. What an albatross our self-absorption is. The primary, and this is not what Beth says, I'm saying it so you can get upset with me. I hear more whiny, whiny tones when people share the terrible things 
that their selves must endure. She says, I cannot stress strongly enough that getting over the self stuff is a daily challenge. As long as we inhabit this tent of flesh, it will rise up in us. We must choose to deny ourselves and take up our cross daily. The challenge demands total honesty before God. Remember, God never convicts to condemn us. He wants, he wants to liberate us. He's already crushed the serpent's head. We are not under the dominion of Satan. If there's an enemy, however, we face every day, it is the ever-present assertions of self. And she ends that portion of her writing with a prayer. One line. Oh God, deliver me from myself and my self stuff. End of quote. And it's caused me to wonder what we don't understand about the gospel. That's uh, good news, by the way. When Jesus said, I have come to give you life and life abundantly. When he would say, you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. We must have thought, many must think that Jesus meant the freedom to pursue our best life now. That salvation has somehow come to serve first and foremost our own best interests. This is just how many a modern preacher and evangelist tries to sell the gospel. I notice they leave out all such talk of daily cross-bearing and God forbid they should mention something like self-denial. But all they make promises as they market the gospel, a different gospel. A gospel that says blessing upon blessing upon blessing upon our blessed lives of self-centeredness. Is this the gospel? Well, I don't think so. And while salvation does indeed address us personally we had better understand that it addresses our true need, not our felt needs or fleshly desires. Salvation, biblically understood, demands our very lives. You can claim to be a Christian and be far from living the Christian life if you're living for yourself. A life of salvation is a life that is lived in self-denial just so God himself may be glorified.
It may surprise some here this morning to hear me say that the gospel, rightly understood, is a whole lot more God-centered than it is man-centered. Now, I suppose I need to prove such a radical statement, don't I? Well, that's why we've come to just one verse of Scripture. Don't think it means a shorter sermon necessarily. Romans chapter 11 and at verse 36. Now, I'm going to read it, but you'll understand right away it's a concluding statement. It is a grand conclusion in the heart of Paul's epistle concerning the gospel. Here's what it says. For from him and through him and to who? Him are all things. To who? Come on, class. To him be the glory forever. Amen. Paul, in 11 chapters, has given us the gospel, and he concludes that whatever it is, it is clearly about him. It is from him, through him, to him, and so to him be all the glory. Sounds pretty God-centered to me. Let's pray for a moment. O Father, grant to us a fresh vision to behold your grace and your glory in the person of your Son and our Savior, Jesus Christ. And having beheld his glory by your grace, change us forever, we pray, in his great name. And for his glory, we ask. Amen. Now, you are no doubt aware that this epistle of Romans is acknowledged to be written for the most part in two parts. The whole of the first 11 chapters curiously do not contain one imperative in the Greek language, which is to say all 11 chapters, half of this epistle, do not have in them one command for us to follow. So that we can say that more than half of the first part of the epistle is sort of all distilled and concentrated truth. That truth that has the ability to set us free. It is doctrine. What we call the doctrines of sovereign grace. What has he done in those 11 chapters? The apostle has made the case that all men everywhere, since the first Adam's rebellion, whether they be deeply religious people, as the apostle himself once was, or whether they be pagan, idol-worshipping barbarians, that together, all together, it turns out, Paul says, they are dug from the same pit of sinful depravity. I want you to hold for a moment in your mind what Paul declared in Romans 3.23. That's going back quite a few chapters. Don't turn there, but it says, and most of you have memorized, for all have sinned, and what? That's right. Fall short 
of the glory of God. Precisely because that verse is so familiar, I want you to take a second to be more thoughtful and to see a correlation between sin, the problem of sin, and the last phrase of Romans 3.23. Fallen short of the glory of God. What's happening in that familiar verse is this. That text is actually defining for us what is the most heinous aspect of any and all sin which can be found in the creature. It is this, that every sinful man, woman, boy, and girl falls short of God's glory. That man made in the image of God did first reflect the glory of God in sinless humanity. But now, since the fall, Adam and all his offspring fall miserably short of that original purpose to reflect the image, to be a mirror image of the very glory of their creator. So my friends, however else you define sin, its ultimate meaning, in fact, its greatest depravity, its greatest evil lies in the fact that it robs God of his intended purpose to reflect his own glory in us. How abundantly and clearly the scriptures say time and again, all things have been created through him and for him. But now the sinner apart from the transforming grace of God, chooses only to live for himself or herself. And, of course, that means the pursuit not of God's glory, but their own puny, vainglory. This is how terrible the impact of the fall upon the human race. And it's upon that very bleak and darkened backdrop of sinful depravity that the apostle sets forth the shining gospel of Jesus Christ. It is good news precisely because it is a message not so much about the sinner, but a message about the perfect, spotless, sinless Lamb of God who comes to take away sin and to restore our original purpose so that if any man, any woman, any boy or girl be in Christ, it is a new creation now enabled by the indwelling Holy Spirit to reflect the glory of God again in one's life. Now you understand in that context why Jesus would define the daily walk of a believer as taking up a cross and getting the ugly self nailed to it 
to deny the sinful self so as to be able to follow Christ, to be like Christ, and to reflect the glory of Christ to those all around. This message of salvation by grace alone, I love how it simply at times overwhelms this former self-righteous Pharisee, Paul. Look at it there in verse 33. Verse 33 of this chapter 11. You know, Paul never grows accustomed to God's grace. All through the days of his life and for all eternity, he just couldn't get over it. He really saw it as amazing grace before amazing grace was a song. Here's what he says, verse 33. Oh, the depths of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgment and unfathomable his ways. He's talking about the gospel that he has defined in these 11 chapters. It is as if to say, who can fully or even adequately express? Paul would say, my quill doesn't have enough ink to express the doctrines of sovereign grace. Why? God's already told us. His ways are not our ways. His thoughts, not like we think, and his ways to some extent are past finding out. And the mystery of the gospel is one of those ways that we can barely, barely understand. The spiritual biography of the Apostle Paul, I would suggest, is condensed in two phrases that just about says it all. Here's what he said. This was after he was a Christian. This was after he was an apostle. This was after he said, I forget those things that are behind, and I press forward, and I want to be like Jesus. And here's what he said, as a mature Christian, I know in me. That is in my what? Self dwells no good thing. You'd think that would be enough to get some of us to stop talking about how good a person we really are. Unless, of course, we're talking about what God has accomplished. I said there were two phrases that condensed Paul's testimony. I know in me that is in myself, that sinful self, dwelleth no good thing. But I am what I am. By the grace of God. All that that would be all of our stories. Someone looks at us and they they just can't understand how, how we could be so, so unselfish. They, they watch us and they, they just can't understand how, how we can be so loving. Especially to some who have not been too lovely. And we'd be able to say, well, what you're seeing is nothing good in myself, but I am what I am by the grace of God. The question is, folks, is it showing? Are Christians standing out today in a culture of almost total self-absorption? And while we may never go to the depths of the riches of God's grace, Paul does know the why of God's grace. 
It may not be what you first think. Why has God saved anyone? I have less trouble uh, with that and more trouble with knowing myself and saying, why would he save me? And the answer to that is given in Scripture. There's a lot of things God doesn't answer. But did you know that Scripture clearly answers why he saved a wretch like you and a wretch like me? It may not be what you think. You see, we tend to think that the ultimate motive working in the heart of God was his love. We say things like this. It wasn't nails that held him to the cross. It was his love. We think so much of ourselves that we sometimes say, when he was on the cross, I was on his mind. And it's true. Yet, those things I know are as true a statement as John 3.16. Love is an issue. It's just not the ultimate motive. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. But God's redemptive love, we know, if we star students of the scripture, is also an electing love. And it must be so. For remember this, man in his sin, left to his own, could care less about God's love. So what motivates and moves the heart of God to save Christ-rejecting, hateful, hostile sinners, wretches like you and me? Excuse me. Why does he show mercy and exercise his grace towards some and not others? Something better in me that I can claim today to be a Christian? What moves God to effectually save any sinner at all? It is true that I am only a sinner saved by grace. But why me? What is it that makes me to differ from another? And I want to say to you that it is in this grand summation of the doctrines of grace in Romans 11.36 we find the answer. And it's not about me after all. And... It's not about you either. You and I discover that we have become the recipients of God's sovereign saving work for this penultimate motivation at work in the heart and out of the unfathomable wisdom of the triune creator. Can it be more clear? Could the answer be more satisfying or more comprehensive than this? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be all the glory forever. Amen. The amen there is sort of enough said, now shut up. It took the apostle 
11 lengthy chapters to reach this conclusion. Now, I only have minutes remaining, but let's look at the text where it seems that the Holy Spirit gave to Paul a primer in Greek prepositions. You know what prepositions are? I'll remind us. Prepositions in any language, including our own, and especially in Scripture, I like to think of them as those little words with big meanings. Prepositions like uh, the word from, or through, or to, or as, or by, or but, for, of, with, etc., etc. Little words. Depending upon where you find them, they can have very, very big meanings. In our text, we have three little words with big meanings. The preposition from, sometimes that's translated of in the King James Version. The preposition through, and then we have the little two-letter preposition, T-O, to, used twice in the same verse. Now, let's look at it again. From him, through him, all things to him, and to him be the glory forever. You see, when the apostle says, from him are all things, he, of course, is touching on the doctrine of origins or first things. Uh, I began our worship service this morning by calling us to worship with the words of Psalm 100. It is he that has made us and not we ourselves. And he made us, beloved, for his own glory. And when we fell in our first father, Adam, he sends Christ to remake us, new creatures in him, for the same reason, for his glory. I have to add the difficult truth of Scripture, which also says there is a literal hell, and people are going to spend eternity there, And that also will be for his glory. For the glory that will shine in the flames of hell is the glory of his thrice holy wrath and judgment. The perfect judgment of God. The astounding truth of the good news is that any, any would escape that righteous judgment. But in order also to glorify his mercy and to show forth his grace, he saves some who are just as hell-bent for destruction as anyone else already in hell. That I, a child of hell, would by his mercies shine, says the old hymn writer. It is through him, through him. He does it, and he does everything he does, certainly from a heart of love, but the ultimate motive is his own glory. Heaven forbid that you rest comfortably on the feather bed of the truths of Scripture which say that he loves me no matter what, and then fail to get out of that bed and glorify him with daily choices that are more about others and his kingdom work and for him than living for self. Do you see the inconsistency of that? 
And so when he says that it is from him, he is the author of salvation. Next, when he says with the preposition through, it is through him, he means something more than just the work of creation. This has to do more with the the present sustaining and the directing of life. Uh, This preposition, if you will, through him, is the proposition that God is sovereign, not only in the work of salvation, but in all the affairs of life. That's how the only way it could be true, that all things would work together for good to those who love God. He must do those things for his glory, and he does. Even in salvation, it was he himself who bore our sins in his own body on the tree. How we can look at that long and then be afraid of words like, if you're going to follow me, you've got to deal with your selfishness, your self-absorption. You've got to nail it to a cross and follow me. And finally, this prepositional phrase, to him, it appears twice, I said. This little word has the biggest meaning of all. It defines the ultimate divine purpose. My kids would use the contemporary word extreme. This is the extreme mercy and purpose of God. That in all of his actions, in all of his redeeming work, that he, to him, would come all the praise, all the honor, all the glory. I won't ask you to turn there because we're out of time, but you can listen to a few verses. And we'll wrap this up. Way before the Apostle Paul gave to us Romans 11 and verse 36, he gave a little more detail of what God was doing in Christ for his own glory when he gave us the first chapter of his epistle to the Ephesians. Again, you don't have to turn there, but mark it down. If you want a blessing this afternoon, read all of Ephesians 1 while asking the question, why would he save a wretch like me? You'll get an answer. Here's what it says. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places of Christ. Why? Well, he chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we would be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us to adoption as sons. He's taking us into his family. He does it with this preposition, through Jesus Christ, listen to this, to himself according to the kind intention of his will. In other words, God chose to do that. And then we get the answer. Why? And here's what Paul wrote. To, the preposition to, or the reason for, the praise of the glory of his grace. You see, when before the foundation of the world and the sovereign counsel of God's own will, doing only what pleased himself, he chose to save Jim Sharp. And I know Jim Sharp. And you don't know Jim Sharp, half of what I know about Jim Sharp. And God knows even more. So that it took grace upon grace, unmerited favor upon unmerited favor, 
That love had to be so unconditional that he simply saved a wretch like me. And he did so, I learned, for the praise of the glory of that grace. Nothing in me. In him we have redemption through his blood, Paul writes. Why, yes, we talk all the time about this. We have the forgiveness of our trespasses. Hallelujah. It's according to the riches of his grace. Paul says, which he lavished on us. Why? To the end, as he writes on, that we who were the first to hope in Christ, listen to this, that we would be to the praise of his glory. That's why in that great historic, I love it, Confession of Faith, the Westminster Confession of Faith and the catechism by which we learn the truths of God's word, the number one question is this. What is the whole duty of man? Folks, with apologies to Pastor Joel Osteen, who pastors the largest church in America, The whole purpose of man is not to discover his best life now. The whole purpose of man is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. We don't begin to live out the purposes of his grace until at least a few times every day. Take up your cross. How often? Daily. I want you to see if there's any time tomorrow at all on a Monday that you willfully choose to say no to self so that you can make yourself a living sacrifice for God's glory.